If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, as was mentioned earlier, we're continuing our way through the Psalms this summer, and we'll be in Psalm 34 this morning. And once you arrive there at Psalm 34, you might realize that with the song we've just sung, we have already started reading Psalm 34. And so let's hear these opening words again and continue through the rest of the psalm. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. And thank you for this invitation to worship you and to rejoice. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, 
that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I was in high school, I read a book with some friends that opened and deepened my life of faith in a really uh, deep way. Some of you might be familiar with this book. It's called Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. What a great title, right? Uh, in, in this book, he shares his story of, of his own wrestling with faith uh, and some of the things he's learned and pondered along the way. But the book opens with these words, and it's where the book gets its title. He writes, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes, and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they are showing you the way. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. Psalm 34, it's kind of like that. It begins with an individual. You can imagine their eyes closed, pouring out their love and their joy, saxophone in hand. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. And then suddenly you realize that there's an audience that's watching this person and all the love and joy pouring out of them. And it goes on. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There's something startling that happens right here at this turn of phrase in the psalm. Right? The psalmist could have easily chosen all kinds of other words. Let the righteous hear and rejoice. Let the people hear and rejoice. Right? Let those who love the Lord hear and rejoice. All of those would make perfect sense. But instead... The invitation here is, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. This psalm is no saxophone performance for jazzophiles, people who love jazz. This psalm is for the people who don't like jazz. The psalm is for the afflicted. The people with the least cause to rejoice of anyone. And yet that's exactly the invitation that it opens with. 
The psalmist is singing good news for those who may not want it or be ready for it, but who desperately need it. The afflicted, the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. And what follows in the next verse is not the psalmist telling the afflicted people to, hey, snap out of it. Worship God. Come on, you guys. Rather, the psalmist just begins to tell his story. He just begins to tell his story. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. See, the psalmist is not trying to convince people to worship God with logic and reason or with principles and platitudes. He simply shares his experience. He shares his story and invites people to be part of that same story. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. There's a posture at work in this psalm and the way that it's told. It's a posture that Paul describes in Romans 12, right in the middle of his instructions to love sincerely and live in harmony. Part of sincere loving and a harmonious living looks like this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This is what it looks like to be people of compassion. It's what it looks like for love to be sincere and for our lives to be harmonious. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And the Psalms show us this time and time again. They do not shy away from any experience of the human heart. They're Psalms of lament and deep mourning. They teach us to take those difficult moments of life seriously. It's not run past them or from them, but to bring them honestly before God. As uh, the musicians talked about last night, our wounds are places where we may very well find wonder. Right? Don't run past those wounds. Let us mourn with those who mourn. But not only are we to mourn with those who mourn, we are also to rejoice with those who rejoice. And as the psalmist rejoices, so the people are invited to rejoice with him. The afflicted and joyless are invited to turn their downcast faces to the Lord and become radiant, bright, shining. And just like painful things are something that we should not run from or run past, but brought before God, so also joyful things are things that we should not quickly move past, but pause to savor them gratefully before God.
And so the psalmist shares his story and invites the people into the joy of that story. Verse 6 continues, This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Now, what is the story that's being referred to? Right? He's being very generic about all of this. Well, if, if you look back up to the heading of Psalm 34, it says this, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. This is a reference to a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is on the run, and he's hiding away, as he often is at this time in his life. And while he's hiding, there's a group of people that begin to recognize him and ask, is this David? Is this the mighty warrior that we've heard of? And David does not want to be found out, so he disguises himself. The text says that he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. What a sight. And so the king said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have brought this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Basically, you guys are part of the circus too. Get out of here, right? Go away, right? And so, David is sent away. Undiscovered and unharmed. Now, if this is the story that's being referred to in the psalm, it's amazing how it's talked about in the psalm. Because wouldn't it make sense for David to take credit for being quick and clever as he got out of this sticky situation? Right? I was about to be recognized, but guess what I did? Right? And, you know, he's just ready to lay on this, this great story of how ingenious he was and clever he was to, you know, oh man, and the saliva was running down my face. It was, you should have been there, right? Can you imagine? Um, it would make so much sense for him to tell the story in that way. And yet, as he tells his story here in the psalm, David does not take credit for his clever success. Rather, he points it all towards God. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. Not this clever man put on a show and got out of there. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. Despite David's quick wit and convincing show. It is not he who escaped, but God who saved him out of all of his troubles. And it makes me wonder how often we take credit for the good things that happen in our life. How often do we look around at 
at successes and credit our performance, our talents, our hard work. But the psalm here invites us to see all good things as gifts from God, not things that we've worked for and earned. As it says in James, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The psalm shows us to look to God for all things and not to ourselves. And this runs counter to so much of our cultural narrative that's often this pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of story. The story of our world is one of self-reliance. You've got to take care of yourself and make sure you keep building your resume. But the story of Scripture is utterly and totally reliant on God. He is the one who has given all good things to us. And yeah, maybe there have been moments that uh, you have been quick-witted and clever, but isn't that from God as well? Rather than pumping ourselves up, the psalm shows us to pour ourselves out and praise to God. And so this attitude of sustained attention on God, crediting Him for goodness and salvation, trusting Him for all things, is what takes center stage as the psalm continues. The psalmist moves from sharing his story to savoring that story. Not running past these good things, but really pausing to savor it. And we see this explicitly in verse 8, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see the goodness of God. Now the Psalms are poetic, and this is certainly a poetic phrase, but there might also be a literal sense to what the psalmist is saying here. Because in ancient Israel, there was a series of various kinds of sacrifices and things that the people would make in their worship of God. We read about them in excruciating detail in Leviticus, uh, Everyone's favorite book of the Bible, right? Uh, that's, that's the place where you just get ramped up when you're doing that Bible through a year plan, right? You were kind of bored, but you get to Leviticus, and that's where you get excited, right? Everyone's experience, right? Um, Leviticus tells us about all these different kinds of sacrifices for different kinds of things. There's sacrifices for dedication to God, where the whole sacrifice is burnt up on the altar. There are other sacrifices for reconciliation to God after committing a sin or an offense, where the blood of the sacrifice is, is applied in these various ways of, of imaging this cleansing kind of thing. And there are other sacrifices that are simply for the thanksgiving of God, to give thanks and to worship him. 
And each one of these sacrifices has its own specific instructions, as I've already mentioned. But here's the thing. The thanksgiving sacrifice is unique in that it is one sacrifice that includes sharing a meal together. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is a communal meal. Part of the sacrifice is burnt on the altar like many others, but the rest of it is eaten and enjoyed in community. Uh, Leviticus 7 says it must be eaten that very day, right? Uh, you got to finish the meal. Clean your plate. Stuff yourself, right? You're giving thanks. It's a literal Thanksgiving meal, right? Their people are full and exhausted at the end of the day. You've had Thanksgiving, right? Um, that's what happens at the Thanksgiving sacrifice. It's a meal that's shared together, and there are no leftovers. And so imagine this psalm, which is already giving thanks for the deliverance of God being sung in the temple or tabernacle to accompany a Thanksgiving sacrifice. The psalmist gives thanks to God, offers the sacrifice, and then as the people gather around to share the Thanksgiving meal, he sings verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As they gather around the table, he says, Taste and see. Look upon the goodness of God. Savor it. This goodness is not just for me, it's for you too. And give thanks to God, not only in this food that we're sharing, but around this table where we're sitting. In the intersection of all of our stories, God is good. Taste it. See it. Savor it. It's this incredible moment. And this is the essence of an attitude of sustained attention to God. And so throughout the rest of this section of the psalm, there are two words that recur over and over and over again that, that help us to understand this attitude a little bit more. The first word that recurs in these next verses is the word Fear. We see it four times. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. We see it twice in verse 9. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. And we see it again in verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The other word that occurs several times here in this section of the psalm is the word good, which also occurs four times. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 12, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. And then verse 14, turn from evil and do good. So fear and goodness 
are at the heart of this psalm. And are at the heart of what it means to have this attitude of sustained attention to God. And on the surface, these two things, fear and goodness, seem opposed to one another. When we think about the context that we usually think of them in, right? Fear is bad. Fear is not a good thing. How would fear be related to goodness? But if we can get into a biblical mindset, we will see how these two things actually flow in and out and directly into one another. Because you see, in the biblical mind, fear is not so much about being afraid as it is about being amazed. It's not so much about something that is scary, but about something that is sacred. A better translation of this word is awe. In fact, the Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay translate verses 8 and 9 this way. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. The blessings of the man who relies on him. Be in awe of Yahweh. You who are his holy ones. Because there is no lack for people who are in awe of him. That hits our ears a little bit differently. And this is far more accurate to what the people would have heard as they sang Psalm 34. You see, experiencing, savoring God's goodness will lead you to be in awe of him. And being in awe of God will enable you to see more of his goodness. They flow in and out of one another. And so what this psalm is showing us is an attitude of awe. An attitude of awe. Living with an attitude of awe means keeping our eyes open to the goodness of God that is all around us all the time. In this way of life, every single thing is transformed into cause for praise. In this way of life, every encounter becomes a reason to rejoice. With this attitude of awe, even the afflicted can hear and rejoice. So the psalmist began by sharing his story, and then he invites us into savoring that story. And in the final part of the psalm, he shifts to teaching the story, or as a preacher, if we're going to keep with the letter S, schooling the story. I'm not going to go there. Teaching the story here, all right? Um, we hear this shift in verse 11, where he says, Come, my children, listen to me. And I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will teach you to live in awe of God. And from this point on, the psalm takes on many characteristics of classic Hebrew wisdom literature. 
Throughout the book of Proverbs, we hear over and over again this sense of, come, my children, listen to me. Over and over again. This is the the mark of wisdom literature. Also in Proverbs, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The awe of God is where wisdom finds its home. And so in the rest of the psalm, we see practical instruction and sacred truth distilled into poetry. But really, the psalm has actually been teaching us all along. If you look up at the very beginning of the psalm again, your Bible might have a footnote indicating that the psalm has actually been an acrostic poem with each verse beginning with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You see, this psalm is like one of those alphabet wallpapers that was plastered on the kindergarten wall, right? As you were learning how to read. But instead of teaching people how to read words, this psalm is teaching people how to read God's goodness throughout their life with this attitude of awe. And so the instructions he gives looks like this. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil. Do good. Seek peace. And pursue it. So tasting and seeing God's goodness also means living and being God's goodness. As we receive the goodness of God, so we also become the goodness of God and the world around us. Does this sound familiar after going through the book of Titus together? last month, right? Living in the goodness of God. Tasting and seeing God's goodness also means living and being God's goodness. And so as we encounter God's goodness, cultivating an attitude of awe includes keeping our tongues from evil and our lips from lies. This attitude of awe means turning away from evil and doing good. It means seeking peace and pursuing it. I cannot imagine anyone would not say that they want peace. If you go out and ask anyone, do you want peace? The answer is almost certainly yes. I would like peace. Right In this world of chaos and anxiety, we all want peace. But what we really want is for peace to just happen. Uh, For it to just sort of fall into our laps like a warm, snuggly blanket. Everyone wants peace, but very few seek peace and pursue peace. You see, we all want to taste and see the goodness of God, but very few of us are willing to stop and savor long enough to really taste it 
Uh, look, I, I bet you can recall an amazing meal that you have had. Some really great meal that, that had some of your favorite dishes or flavors or whatever. On, on our recent trip uh, a couple months ago to Greece, uh, there was this one afternoon that was absolutely amazing. Uh, we had this amazing lunch, this authentic Greek restaurant. The table was overlooking the sort of bright and beautiful blue waters and everything. I mean, it was just magnificent. It was authentic Greek food. Our table um, was, was there. Um, they brought us this bread with tzatziki, if you've had that kind of white cucumbery sauce. There was a Greek salad, which was made up mostly of tomatoes and cucumbers, some onions. Um, and then there was this incredible dish, I don't even know its name or if it has a name, that was just feta cheese that had been baked in this pastry with honey drizzled over it. It was amazing. Um, right, It was just this amazing moment. And that tzatziki was smooth like butter. That salad, I'm not a big fan of tomatoes, to be honest, but these tomatoes were great. And I, that, that honey feta pastry thing was just magic. Uh, it was just absolutely magic, dripping with honey. And so what, what, is, what is your memory of an amazing meal. I'm sure that something comes to mind. Sit with that memory for just a minute. Now, I want you to think back to breakfast this past Wednesday, or maybe lunch on Thursday. Do you remember that? No? Right? You probably had it, but you didn't savor it. You ate it, and then you blew right past it into whatever you needed to do for the day. We want to experience goodness, but we so rarely slow down long enough to really taste it. We want to have peace. But we rarely put forth the intentionality that it takes to truly seek and pursue peace. I wonder, what might change in your life if you really turned away from evil and toward goodness? Not just away from evil, right? That's been ingrained in anyone who's been at church for any amount of time, right? But turn toward goodness. What would change if you really sought that out? What might change if you truly sought peace? Not just wished for it, but sought after it, pursued it. What would that look like? You see, these things are actually not far from us. As the rest of the psalm goes on to tell us. 
the psalmist begins to shift here from instructions for our tongues and lips to describing God's eyes and ears. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. When we seek peace and pursue it, God is ready to respond. God is ready with peace. Right? You want to taste the goodness of God. Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We need only reach for it and take a big, great bite. When we seek peace and pursue it, God is ready to respond. When we turn from evil and toward goodness, God is ready to give. God is ready to show his goodness to anyone who turns to him. These things are not far off. And it doesn't matter what circumstances we're in, what moments we're living in, because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. Those are not excuses or or reasons to, to be far from God. Those circumstances are ones in which God is nearer than you even know. He is near to the brokenhearted. He's close to the crushed in spirit. As I read these things, the the, the proclamations and, and the teachings of this psalmist sound a whole lot like the teachings and the proclamations of someone else who was to come. The psalmist tells us to turn from evil and find goodness and peace nearby. Jesus calls us to repent, to turn, because the kingdom of God has come near. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Well, Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, this whole psalm takes on its deepest and fullest meaning when we hear it from the voice of Jesus. Imagine Jesus gone through death and raised to life telling you, his people, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us all exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. I was on the cross, and He delivered me from all of my fears. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. 
Can you imagine Jesus as we have in the book of John uh, waiting to meet his disciples? He calls them in. They're out fishing. And when they arrive, he's, he's got some fish on the fire that he's been cooking. And he offers it to them. The resurrected Christ taste and see that the Lord is good. I was dead, but now I am alive. Can you imagine as we gather around the table each week, the resurrected Jesus saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. Jesus cried out to His Father on the cross, and His Father did hear Him and did answer. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. When Jesus was crushed on the cross, the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles. The righteous person will have many troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. John points to this verse whenever Jesus' legs were not broken as a sign that Jesus, in fact, is the one singing this song. The Lord will rescue His servants. No one who takes refuge in Him will be condemned, because in Christ there is no condemnation. Jesus Our resurrected Lord is calling us to rejoice with Him this morning. He is alive. The Lord has redeemed Him and resurrected Him. Will you rejoice with Him? Even in your affliction, will you rejoice with the resurrected Lord? Let us join our voices with Him and worship Him. Amen.